Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I am in Cambridge, Helen Thompson is in London, Adam Tooze is in New York. The coronavirus is just about everywhere. We are going to start trying to put together some of the pieces of this giant puzzle. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the only magazine willing to ask the questions that keep you awake at night and answer them too, even if it takes 10,000 words. Is it okay to have a child in the age of climate crisis? Where next for the coronavirus? Was it a hermit crab that ate Amelia Earhart? You know where to go. Talking Politics listeners get to subscribe for a world-beating rate using the URL lrb.me slash talk. They'll even send you a free copy of Sinomania, writing about China from the London Review of Books. Just go to lrb.me slash talk. Like a lot of people, we're having to adjust our working practices and we're trying out some new equipment today that allows us to talk to people who aren't in the same room. It's not quite possible this time to get Adam and Helen together. The sound quality is a little patchy in my conversation with Adam. It gets better and it is fine with Helen, so do stick with it. I am as keen as I know many of our regular listeners are to know what Adam Tooze and Helen Thompson think about what's going on at the moment. It's almost impossible to know where to start. There is so much we could talk about and we will try and talk about a lot and we will come back to this, I promise you. Adam, when we talk to you previously on this podcast, we've often started with Italy. It's the been the weak link in the Eurozone and it's posed a threat to the stability of European politics. Now in Italy, the story is the human cost of this virus. That's at the heart of it. But those weaknesses haven't gone away. And it does also raise questions about the future of Europe and the future of the Eurozone. Do you want to just give us your take on it as of today, where you think the weak points are when we look at Italy? Yeah, it's almost some horrible act of fate that it should have been Italy that was the first place where the coronavirus hit in Europe. Um I mean, maybe not entirely accidental. There's various sociological speculations going around about the particular vulnerability of the Italians due to the cohabitation of different generations, which in turn may have economic and social origins. It may be to do with the presence in northern Italy of a large number of Chinese contractors, again, a sign of the shifting patterns of the Italian economy. But the result is to expose the fundamental weakness of the Eurozone. And what is, in a sense, even more astonishing is that rather than recognising the fact that this act of fate had targeted that weakness, the ECB last week, and notably ECB President Lagarde in her press conference, seemed almost determined willfully um, to re-expose this running saw this fundamental fault line um, in her comments about it not being the ECB's job to narrow spreads. Whereas everyone who has engaged in the sovereign debt market in the Eurozone since 2010 knows that this is the central question facing the ECB. What is its role with regard to spreads? And she blurted out, as it were, the most doctrinaire conservative line, whereas the survival of the zone has depended for a long time essentially on the fudge 
the combination on the one hand of whatever it takes um, in the form of Draghi's promise of 2012, and then a variety of instruments for stabilizing the Eurozone that frankly, no one wants to see actually tested in practice. OMT on the one hand, and the capital key in the quantitative easing bond buying program, which limits the quantities of particular national bonds that the ECB can buy. So it was a really almost willful exposure of those fundamental problems. Was it willful? So she said, and I think you tweeted, these are seven very expensive words for Italians over the next decade and more. She said, we are not here to close spreads. It was deliberate, was it? It wasn't just, she's new into the job. It wasn't just slightly blurted out. Well, I think it's a, it's really difficult to read this and we will, we, we may never know. I mean, it's a question of kind of individual intentionality and it may have been some kind of Freudian slip. I mean, what is significant is that the Bundesbank quite rapidly piled in to say, yes, broadly speaking, we agree with this. And then that the ECB's press team decided to actually cut that particular gaffe out and turn it into an ECB official tweet. So there are certainly, if you like, forces within the ECB and bodies of opinion, which we're all too familiar with, that like this line and in fact agree with Lagarde's position that this is not the ECB's role. And so in a sense that that struggle for the future of monetary policy within Europe appears to be going on even at this moment of acute crisis, when you might think that those kind of concerns would be suspended. Because after all, this is not the situation which can be attributed to the fecklessness of Italian fiscal policy or so on. And the Italians are, I think we all agree, bravely attempting to stem the crisis by by whatever means are necessary. Because we've talked in the past about the deep structural divisions within Europe, within the Eurozone, North versus South is one way of doing it. Germany plus its allies versus the rest is another. It's a crisis. You can tell us in a second how we should measure the magnitude of it from where we are now. But it's a crisis that at least potentially looks like it's on a scale that it ought to transcend those divisions. If this doesn't transcend those divisions, you have to ask what would. And yet, from what you say, it hasn't. Well, we don't know yet. This is early days and uh, significant bodies of opinion in Germany are mobilising early this week to insist that after all, the Germans do get it and Berlin does understand. A couple of months ago, we were still somewhat cynically observing that it would be great for Europe to suffer some sort of comprehensive economic crisis because then the Germans might learn that they too are exposed to risk. Uh, we were thinking then of the auto industry, the motor vehicle industry, which was going through a severe downturn. And Corona, after all, is precisely that kind of crisis. I mean, the, there are minor differences uh, in terms of the provision of public health systems with key equipment like ventilators, but all of them are going to be overwhelmed by the exponential growth of infection um, that, that we're seeing. And so I think there is still very much the possibility for a rally after all, Merkel had to deny uh, yesterday that she had in fact agreed in a telephone call with the other heads of government that there might need to be corona bonds and Macron is pushing that hard. I think the question is how far we dig ourselves back into the trenches of earlier phases of the Eurozone governance argument. And as yet, we haven't, as it were, that game is not played out. So there is still the possibility here for a turning in the right direction. But that 
first skirmish over Italy, and it is only the beginning, was not promising. The ECB, by making those comments, has given the hostages the fortune. The limits of the asset purchasing program are quantified, which is unhelpful. And we have to reckon, after all, with the markets, which are, to say the least, skittish and could take this as an invitation for a run on Italy. When we've talked before, we had one conversation in the context of your book, Crashed, about what happened in 2008 and beyond. And you said, and it's still true, that that crisis is not going to repeat in our lifetimes. The circumstances that created that crisis were, in their own terms, unique. This one is different, but in scale, it could match it. And it is happening in the post-2008 world. So can you just sketch out for us where you see the weaknesses in the system this time round that weren't there last time round? The fundamental weakness in the Eurozone is one of the continuities. Um, I just don't think anyone expected it necessarily to be exposed uh, and the sort of speculative dynamics that we're seeing to have been unleashed by a pandemic. Um, but this structural problem is the legacy, really, of 2010. Italy was not uh, a causal driver of the subprime crisis or indeed the banking crisis of 08-09. It became collateral damage. It has not recovered. And that really is the grand continuity. And it's an extraordinary testament to the ability of the Eurozone and the EU to prevaricate and to extend and pretend that it has not addressed this issue and that failure is being exposed. In, in other respects, I think there are really novel elements to this crisis. And the one that most observers, I think, single out is the gigantic explosion in corporate debt that we've seen since 2008. So this is borrowing in the form of bonds of various types, uh, various types of loans, syndicated loan by the world of business, by very large business actors. So this is not the structure that we're familiar with from the mortgage crisis of ordinary people uh, taking out mortgage and those then being synthesized into marketable products. This is the operation of high finance between banks and various types of investors and very large corporates. And the volume of that debt has doubled since 2008. And quite a lot of it, as you would expect, is of dubious quality. A suspiciously large amount is stacked up just on the ratings borderline between investment grade and high yield or junk. That suggests that not necessarily foul play, but clearly a huge incentive to rate bonds as investment grade because that opens them up to a whole range of different investors. And the real fear, I think, here is of a non-linearity at the moment when a large amount of that kind of debt begins to be downgraded, it loses the capacity to be investable by certain sorts of funds. And then we could see the sort of uh, cliff type uh, dynamics that we're in fact, we've already seen in the last uh, week or so in financial markets, amplifying, ramifying. And then who knows where the other weak hands are in this system. Because the banks we were told are better placed than they were last time. But yes, presumably the banks could also be overwhelmed. Yes, and in the Eurozone, unfortunately, we have to say that's the weak link. Again, the, the Eurozone banks are not in great shape. They're not exposed to the extraordinary risk they were by way of their involvement in the US subprime market and their active role in that. But their balance sheets remain fundamentally weak. Both the big German bank, Deutsche Bank, and uh, the two leading Italian banks, Santander and uh, Unicredit, will come under 
very considerable pressure. But in general, yes, the fact that the bank balance sheets are stronger is one of the real pluses in this current situation. But if the banks do come under pressure, should we think that the capability of either national governments or collective action at the European level is less great than it was 2008 and beyond? As it moves up and through the various levels, we've been told in the past that many of the levers have already been pulled. And in this crisis, a lot of the levers were pulled very, very quickly, much quicker than the last time round. Is there less firepower? I'm not sure that firepower is the issue. I think the, the, the break here is largely at the level of politics. The, the question is really whether the Eurozone in Europe has the stomach for another round of collective efforts to stabilise its banking system. A lot was made of the moves towards banking union after 2012, but on the key issues, the risk sharing of common deposit insurance, basically negotiations stalled. To face a really big run on the banks in Europe, as yet still does not have the firepower that it would need. But I think the really fundamental issue is is political. The instruments are there. We know what they would need to be. The ECB has created a variety of, if you like, tiered interest rates through which it can shuttle resources within the European banking system between the more liquid, in some sense excessively liquid parts in Germany towards the more strained parts There is even the possibility of shifting capital essentially off the balance sheets of the central banks onto the balance sheets of the private banks. So a variety of different instruments are there and those levers were pulled last week and that will undoubtedly help. But the real issue is the fundamental political commitment and the lack of clarity and commitment there was all too painfully exposed by by Lagarde's comment. If it's a question of political leadership, and again, we've talked about this quite a lot, within the context of Europe, who are the leaders, Merkel is still there. I mean, various regimes have been kind of, for now anyway, frozen in place. But at the European level, it's a new guard. We've got von der Leyen, we've got Lagarde, relatively inexperienced people in, in new jobs. And then there's always Macron in the background, who's somewhere between the old guard and the new guard. I'm not sure what he is. It has to be at some level a question of political leadership. Where is it going to come from? Well, I think uh, the commission is a, is a real worry right now because, in a sense, this, this commission came into office desperate to set a new agenda. I mean, the Juncker commission was supposed to have been the commission that really consolidated after the Eurozone crisis, and to a very large extent, that did not happen. Uh, they benefited from the slow, but in the end, significant recovery of the Eurozone Um, But the key steps on banking union, on the development of a real fiscal capacity were not taken. And there was a sense with Ursula von der Leyen and the Green Deal agenda that in a sense we could move on and we could move on to greener pastures, to the more dynamic and obviously also extremely urgent terrain of decarbonisation. And now that group of politicians who define themselves, if you like, as being the new agenda setters have been hurled back into a terrain and onto a terrain where they have to fight their way through the classic issues of the of the eurozone crisis and that frankly is not a, a promising scenario especially in light of the fundamentally weakened position not just of merkel but of the cdu in germany the gloss is thoroughly off macron of course so it is not promising and and it has to be said that the hopes which people including myself placed in lagarde as a political actor have been cruelly disappointed in this first phase. So 
Yes, I, I agree with you. That question, if you like, of political leadership, or just frankly, even competent when it comes to managing the banking crisis is posed. And, you know, mercifully, in a sense, the Fed appears to just be following in a much more straightforward way the rule book and the playbook of 2008. They're pulling the levers, they're pulling them hard, they've activated the swap line system. So there's almost a sort of shrugging acceptance, I think, not just in Europe, but worldwide, that the ECB is a broken reed as a strategic actor. It can do some local things, tinkering on the balance sheets of the banks, but the leadership in addressing the crisis is going to come from somewhere else. So we're talking to you in New York. You're seeing this from there. I'm in the UK, so neither of us are inside the European Union at the moment. When you look at not just the Fed, but what's happening in the United States at the level of political leadership, and then you compare it with what's happening in Europe, which scares you more? The epidemic here has spread nationwide on a really dramatic scale. There is an extraordinary reluctance, apparently, to take leadership from uh, the centre to deploy the emergency management resources and institutions that the US actually does have, though you might not know it from events of the last couple of weeks. The US has almost certainly lost the strategic option that China availed itself of, which is of containing the virus in one region, a large region, admittedly, but nevertheless containing it there, and then funneling in resources from other parts of the state so as to make the crisis manageable. It appears in the US simply to have spread too widely, too quickly, and the public health measures of the last week or so may turn out to be, or the lack of them may turn out to be, disastrous in that respect. So I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm extremely concerned about the situation here. The inequities in the American health system are like virtually none, you know, they're not there, they're worse than anywhere else in the world. And they again will be painfully exposed by this, by this crisis. So severe as the problems no doubt appear in, in much of Europe and particularly in the UK, I, I do think that, um, there's the potential for some kind of Iran-style development in the US. One of the strange things about this crisis, maybe strange isn't the word for it, relative to the great financial crisis that we've been talking about, is the way time operates here. It's it's slower. I mean, the literal contagion, but also the risks of contagion are operating more slowly countries are playing out other countries' fates in different time and also wondering which fate is theirs. Is it to be Iran? Is it to be Italy? Is it to be South Korea? It's not going to be South Korea, I think, because that ship has sailed, as you said. But there's a different, there's a, I mean, for all sorts of reasons, there's a different quality to this. There's a different edge to the anxiety, I think. It doesn't quite have that cliff edge feel that this sucker is about to go down it's more slow motion than that, but in some ways that makes it more alarming. Or am I misreading it? This question of the timing is really puzzling, and I think we're in the process of working it out. We are, after all, very early days in terms of the kind of quarantine systems that may have to be adopted, and the lack of clarity about that is extraordinary. But I'm not, I'm not impressed by its slowness so far. I mean, if you think about it, you know, in January, the, the global economic organizations were still expecting a recovery from the manufacturing recession of last year. The news flow was broadly positive. The markets were still bubbling along. And really, within a matter of weeks, we have gone to a situation which, from the point of view of New York and from the financial pages, 
and from the kind of actions being taken by major central banks actually looks like September 2008. So we, we've gone from, we've gone, you know, in the financial crisis after all, the trouble started in real estate in the spring of 2007. Rumours began to circulate about subprime and then things got very serious in the late summer and fall of 2007. From there, it was 12 months to the failure of Lehman. That's actually, comparatively speaking, a long time scale by comparison with what we're dealing with. And the shutdown in the financial markets, not just the fall in stocks and equities, but the basic disintegration of huge funding markets like the commercial paper market, the dysfunctionality of repo, the stresses um, in cross-currency movements, so the ability of Asian and European financial institutions to get dollars, this has ramped up at an absolutely remarkable, remarkable pace. And the impact on ordinary people, the impact on working life has been even more rapid. So the job losses that we're going to be confronted with over the next two or three months are more steep, more severe than in 2008. In the US, the minimum estimates put our job losses probably at a million a month between now and the summer. That's significantly greater than even the worst period that we moved towards over the winter of 08-09. And then on top of that, we have the oil crisis unfolding. So we have like a concatenation here of temporalities, which is again, unique and extraordinary in its intensity. You're right. And I think it, these are the tricks of historical memory. One thinks of the Lehman weekend and the accounts of the people involved in that. I've read some, not nearly as many as you have, and you've spoken to the people involved. But that sense of minutes and hours and the interconnectedness of the system, everyone was aware it was a question of minutes and hours. I completely agree with you that there are aspects to this which are both quicker and where the links are more frightening. And yet it has that quality and this may be some of the complacency. There's no complacency left anywhere, I think, in the world. But there was some in some places that you were seeing these things play out in other countries. And one was aware it was moving around the world. It wasn't moving at the pace of money. It was moving at the pace of a disease. And that felt different. I guess you're right. It doesn't feel different now. I mean, even you know, 10 days is a long time in this story. I can remember it was only last weekend when I woke up and said to my sister-in-law who was visiting from the States, oh, they've quarantined Northern Italy. They're mad. Yeah. <laughs> and now that yeah. seems like quaint. Yeah, I mean, and our failure after all epidemiologically is to realise that that was a matter of days and hours. Yeah. That in fact it was crucial to act as though it was, which it is in terms of the of the viral spread, right? You know, a single demonstration like the gigantic women's march in Spain can infect tens of tens of thousands of people. A single Korean patient, you know, patient thirty one, affected a thousand people. So this, in fact, does have that kind of spread. And the problem is it's being compounded. I just have to re-emphasize this. In the financial markets right now, it's as though we are back, not in 2007, early days, but really in the middle of September of the worst weeks. And so far, no failures. So far, no balance sheets, which look as bad as we knew Lehman's balance sheet was by September. But the stresses are absolutely, absolutely huge. And if they're being contained, it's in part because the Fed and the other central banks are doing the sort of things almost immediately that it took them months to figure out they needed to do in 2007-8. You know, the swaps are unlimited. 
already immediately because we had the institutions in place in 2013. They have stepped into in sequence the repo market, the commercial paper market. You know, day by day, we are reactivating those those schemes. So that is containing what otherwise could very well be an absolutely runaway situation in money markets and capital markets. So the, the temporalities are not given, right? They are themselves being shaped by the speed of our response and the forces that are being mobilized uh, in response. I hope we're going to come back to this and we're going to talk to you again, Adam, if the technology holds out, it doesn't all have to be decided today. This is, as you say, early, but there is one other thing I want to ask you about, the other feature of this, which makes it completely different in some ways, unless I've missed something from 2008 and beyond, which is the role that China has played. We know where this started. There was a spat going on, a kind of Cold War style spat to do with journalists and stories about who said what to whom between the US and China, a blame game. But we know where it started. And also we know where it was contained. And we have an example of a form of containment. We have other examples too, including in South Korea. But Mm -hmm. unlike in 2008, we can see one political system which in a ruthless and frightening way, did adjust. And it's not clear what the lessons are for the rest of the world from that, but there are lessons which there weren't, right, in 2008. There was nothing equivalent to what China has done for anyone to look at. Well, I mean, I agree with you in general that this is clearly another phase in the shift and another phase in the emergence of China, the re-emergence of China as you know, a huge force on the world stage as, uh, if not an example, then at least, as it were, a case, a reality that everyone has to address. I mean, the spread of the disease out of China is in of itself absolutely not novel. Generally speaking, the huge population masses, the animal-human entanglements of East Asia is where these diseases come from. That's completely standard. But the ability of the Chinese regime, apparently unprecedented in epidemiological history, to bend this curve on this scale with this speed does signal something that we surely have been familiar with for some time now, that there is an extraordinary state capacity there. And they are ahead of the curve. It isn't, to my mind, radically unique in that I would see Beijing's fiscal and monetary stimulus of 2008-9 as the first wake-up call that we're already in that world. A large part of the world economy was floated out of the recession of 2008 by the scale of China's stimulus. All of China's raw material suppliers, the countries that export to it, including Germany, benefited enormously from that. That, I think, is, as it were, the prime turning point where a large part of world affairs and systemic functioning began to shift to be centred around China. This, I would take to be another dimension of that same move. It's a little bit like Huawei suddenly emerging as, as it were, the pivot of all of 5G politics. China here emerges as the pivot of epidemiological politics and its ability to scramble and to symbolically put on show, you know, its ability to assist countries like Italy, uh, that we have Chinese billionaires making, you know, charitable donations of face masks to the struggling population of the American West Coast. These are these are uh, symbols of, of that of that shift. And I think the key thing to watch here, I think, beyond the spat, which is more than a spat because the politics of between China and the US are incendiary on both sides. One of the sort of areas where we get back into the world of Huawei and tech is the issue of life sciences, patents, the race now to develop a vaccine and who controls that and on what terms. And I think that will be 
a really, you know, I say this in a sort of detached, intellectualizing way, but it, on that, a, a large part of the fate of the world may depend and our ability to go on functioning in the way that we take for granted is how we get to that vaccine, who gets to that vaccine, what the politics and economics of that process are, is, is going to be, you know, a, a vital story. Hi, friends. Um, this is Adam Toos uh, speaking from New York. Um, it's uh, 7.30 in the evening here. Um, and uh, whilst England slept, uh, the ECB has delivered a bit of a bombshell, which requires an addendum to uh, my chat with uh, David and Helen this morning. Um, this morning, we were very, being very pessimistic about uh, the ECB's reaction to the Eurozone crisis so far. Um, triggered by Corona. Um, and it seems that in the course of the day, the panic in the markets has led Frankfurt to substantially reevaluate their options. Uh, they've come forward with a remarkable uh, bond buying program um, released in the last half hour um, to the tune of 750 billion euros, uh, which will be steered towards buying both sovereign bonds and corporate debt. Uh, as if to apologise for their glitch of last week, um, the board, the governing council of the ECB would like the citizens of the euro area to know that it's going to support all of their efforts in these extremely challenging times and the governing council will do everything necessary within its mandate. And it adds uh, in an extraordinary rider to the extent that some self-imposed limits might hamper action that the ECB is required to take in order to fulfil its mandate the Governing Council will consider revising them to the extent necessary to make its action proportionate to the risks that we face. In other words, the ECB is saying that if it is necessary to lift regulations which govern the quantity and the share of each sovereign's debt that it may buy, it will lift those caps. Um, this is basically, I think, an effort from the ECB side to take the sovereign risk uh, uh, for the Italians out of the equation and to relieve the pressure on the French and the Spanish as well, who might find themselves otherwise in the front line of the emerging Eurozone crisis. So this is an update from New York uh, this evening. Um, uh, this is a rapidly unfolding story and I look forward to the next chance to discuss it with David and Helen. Thank you. Good night. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Helen, we're going to come back to this and we're going to talk about this a lot more. But today, let's just focus with you on something that Adam touched on, but we didn't talk about in any detail, which is what happened to the oil price. And the oil price is falling even now as we speak. The driver of the fall of the oil price is what happened between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Just give us a bit of context for what's going on with oil at the background of what's going on with the coronavirus. What we can see happening with uh, with the oil markets was is that a problem emerged really from the beginning of the year once it became clear 
that Chinese demand was in difficulty because of the coronavirus and the economic shock in China. At that point, the basic, if you like, structure that has kept oil prices in the range in which they've been since the end of 2016, which is an arrangement called or has been an arrangement called OPEC Plus, which is essentially an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Russia, broke up because the, the Saudis wanted to basically make some production cuts in order to try to force the price back up again. And the Russians wanted to wait and see how things developed. At that point, once the Russians refused to go along with the production cuts that the, the Saudi government wanted, then the Saudi government responded by slashing prices, increasing the amount of oil and increasing the amount of oil in, into the markets, effectively declaring a, a price war. And so you simultaneously got a supply in terms of the supply agreement between the producers shock going on and a demand shock going on because of the economic crash that is um, taking place. But the crucial thing in a way is is that these destabilizing dynamics have really been in place since the end of 2016 because there's always been an uneasy, very uneasy accommodation between the Saudis and Russians. They've got a clear set of disagreements with each other in the Middle East. And at the same time, both of them, I think in the end, particularly the Russians, are very uncomfortable that what OPEC Plus has been doing is been propping up prices to the benefit of the American shale industry. So what does it mean for where we are now? Adam talked about the way in which different kinds of threats have come together. The economic situation is deteriorating very, very fast. How much is that is being driven by what's happened to oil and how much of what's happened to oil is actually making it more dangerous? I think that at the beginning, once it became clear um, how the Saudis had responded to the breakdown in cooperation with Russia, the oil markets were having a direct effect on the financial markets. I think that as things have, have moved on since then, and the way in which the, the financial markets responded as negatively as they did to the two emergency interest rate cuts that the, the Fed have made, it's much less clear that oil is driving the, the financial crisis aspect of this. I think in terms of where things go, there's a really difficult question coming up in terms of the politics, if you like, of it all. And that is, is that the American shale industry cannot manage with prices at this level. And it particularly can't manage with prices at this level in the middle of a financial crisis because of the amount of debt that there is in the American shale sector. And so there's going to be a question, and you can already hear some noises out of this, out of the Trump administration, about some kind of possible bailout, certainly some kind of support structure for the American shale industry. And that is going to be incredibly politically difficult because, as we know, there have been you know, several of the candidates uh, for the Democrat uh, nomination in favour of instantly shutting down, not Joe Biden, in favour of instantly shutting down the, the shale sector. And even those like Biden have got at least moderately critical positions towards um, shale so it's going to be incredibly difficult to do that. On the other hand, it's really unclear to me that the any American administration, whatever the rhetoric that they deploy, can simply allow a full-scale meltdown in shale. So if we take a step back from oil, where do you think the big fault line now is in the, the global system, the global political economic system? What's the thing that's giving you most anxiety? Well, I think that there's two different 
things in terms of uh, in, uh, the way that I see it in terms of what's anxiety inducing. The first is, is that this looks to me like a completely unprecedented economic meltdown. And that is because there's such a profound element of uncertainty about how long it's going to last. And we've effectively across the world shutting down significant amounts of economic activity. And nobody really understands what that means. Secondly, I think that we're not clear what some of the policy responses to that are going to involve as consequences six months or a year down the road. They may be absolutely necessary now, in fact, I'm pretty sure that they are, but nobody's got any idea what that, that means. And we're doing this you know, at a moment when it's clear that the traditional policy tools, including the ones that the, the Fed and other central banks relied on to get through the 2008 crash, on working. I mean, in one sense, basically what the Fed in particular, you know, has done um, since 2008 is, is that at moments of financial market concern, and indeed sometimes, you know, quite um, big fall in, in, in asset prices, it has responded by pumping um, liquidity into the, the system and making um, interest rates cuts. But they're not policy tools that can actually design to cope with the present kind of economic crisis. I mean, the, the other thing I think that concerns me is, is that some of these things that are happening, although it's likely to get forgotten, I think, once we get the other side of this, have got origins in all the dysfunctionality that has built up since 2008. There has been a, you know, a, a basically an asset bubble in, in share markets that has now, in some sense, burst. Though, if you look at the actual fall compared to where markets were even two years ago, it doesn't look quite as significant as it is when you're talking about um, daily losses. If you look at the relationship between the geopolitical relationship between the US and China, which has got incredibly testy over the accusations each are throwing at each other, and the Chinese have just, I think it was yesterday, expelled some American journalists, that relationship was already being reset as a result, not only of the trade war, but in some sense, more importantly, I don't want to go overboard in calling it a technological war, but it's certainly technological um, conflict that's been going on since at least 2018, certainly through the course of 2019. As I say, with, with oil, is the dynamics that are playing out that have produced as big a fall as we've seen in oil prices, because you would have expected some to come from the demand side, but because of the Saudi-Russia relationship over oil um, is at the moment broken down, though it could, of course, in principle, be repaired, is is because having the world's three largest oil producers as Saudi Arabia, Russia and the United States, and the United States uh, shale producers doing themselves pretty much nothing in terms of production in order to keep prices at the level in which is necessary for them is not a stable kind of arrangement. So it's the fact that things that have clearly been destabilizing over the last decade are now kind of crashing into each other to produce such across the board instability that deeply worries me. I started with Adam talking about Europe and you and I have talked more than I care to mention about Europe and some of the weaknesses in the Eurozone. That landscape that you've laid out is very broad. Europe is caught somewhere in the middle. It's also at the heart of the virus crisis itself. Christine Lagarde 
gave a press conference and that press conference people may look back on as a moment of fundamental weakness in the entire eurozone system how big do you think the danger is to the eurozone itself i i think that the questions about dangers to the eurozone are always very hard to answer because of the fact that it's very difficult if not impossible now to undo the eurozone but i did what i do think uh, is is that it exposed a, a really deep structural weakness in the eurozone so if you go back to 2012 when Draghi said whatever it takes then this press conference is seen as the reversion of whatever it takes whatever it takes that moment didn't itself save the eurozone what saved the eurozone was Draghi's ability over the summer of 2012 to procure German consent which meant in the first instance Merkel's and Wolfgang Schäuble's finance the German finance then finance um, ministers um, to the OMT program, which in in practice was actually um, never used. So the issue I think is is that if you look at the ECB's authority, you can say that in some sense it looked like it was saved by. And I know this seems a strange thing to say about a central bank, but about charismatic authority that was backed crucially backed by the the German government. So the ECB didn't have the legal authority um, for OMT, which has been anyway then consistently challenged in the German constitutional court you can't see that it say that it was if you like traditional authority that it had because it was doing things that, that it hadn't done before it was saved in some sense by this thing that we could call you know Weber called charismatic authority and Draghi's ability not only to use those words but then to get consent to those words from the crucial German players and what Lagarde's press conference, I think, you know, has exposed is that that is nowhere near sufficient, actually, to save the Eurozone. So even if German consent remains in place, and that, you might say, remains questionable, that it wasn't going to be possible to continue the kind of guarantee that the ECB had given to the most indebted states in the in the Eurozone. And in particular, that means Italy, in order for things to carry on as they were. So in that sense, what she's done is expose that the kind of authority that was used in order to save the Eurozone in 2012 wasn't sufficient and that they, in order for there to be able to continue on the basis in which it has been set up, there has to be a deeper and broader consensus than there in fact is. There is an awful lot going on at the moment and you won't be surprised to hear a lot of our plans have changed too. Some of the guests that we had lined up who were coming to the Cambridge Literary Festival, which has now sadly been cancelled, we won't be talking to soon. So no Tom Watson, no Anne Enright. But we are still here. We are going to keep going. Helen and I will be in regular contact. We'll also be in contact with Adam and with lots of other people too. We're going to be recording a conversation soon with the historian Richard Evans, who is the world's leading expert on the history of cholera and other epidemics, and we'll be talking about what those diseases can teach us about the present. But we're also going to be talking about other things. Helen and I are going to do a fan fiction episode about Hilary Mantel and Thomas Cromwell. And we're going to be releasing some of our back catalogue episodes on different themes, cheerier themes, some of them a little nostalgic, some of them very relevant to what's going on now. Do stay with us through these difficult times. We are here to keep you company. It's not all going to be cheering, but we hope it will all be interesting. 
My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. I might have to just interject. I'm going to mute my microphone, but I might unmute it to say, hold on, hold on, that sounded terrible. We need to go back and start from where Helen said the 1970s or oil or something. Um, (laughs) I would like that button in my life generally, actually. Um, Adam, I'm... (laughs) If I could just go back to one of those moments where Helen had mentioned that, I would be (laughs) quite happy at this point. (laughs)